0: Well, good morning uh, before we dive into this will you just join me and just say in a real simple prayer it's based out of Psalm 119 but if this will be the prayer that you ask God to do and it's simply open the eyes of my heart that I may behold wondrous things out of your law if you'll just take a quick minute just pray for your own heart to be opened before we dive into God's message God, we come before you, and we ask that you open the eyes of our hearts, so that we we may behold wondrous things out of your law this morning. God, help us focus on you in this time, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. So I did a little research this week, and I found out um, that the lottery, the big one, like the jackpot, the Powerball, it is going for 386 million dollars. And so I thought, okay, so if I were to win that, have you ever played that game? I've had a couple conversations about, with people about this this week. If you were to win the lottery, what would you buy? And there was a little pre-sermon survey in the bulletin insert, if you filled that out. Uh, I went ahead and did that because I thought, okay, like I'd like to know what I would buy. So take home out of that 300 plus million is only 186 million. So sorry about that. You're not gonna have that much money. But out of $186 million, I sat down and I literally like, looked stuff up. I was like, I'm going to buy some land. That's half a million. I'm going to buy, uh, obviously, new Forerunner, new Sequoia, new motorcycle, new boat, new, like, new everything. Uh, that's going to be maybe half a million by the time I get all that stuff. Um, obviously, because I'm super spiritual, I'll give 20% away. Um, I'll be extra generous in that. Uh, I'm going to also be a really good friend. So I'm going to give $12 million to certain people um, and help them out, like my family and stuff like that. Isaiah is going to be set for life. Uh, and so after doing all of that, I came up with my list and I thought, that's it. That's got to be $186 million. And I made it to $53 million. So I had $133 million left over. And then I was like, well, I, I'm set for life. There's nothing more that I want. And then I start talking to people and they're like, oh, well, I would like get this. And it reminded me, well, I I do want to learn how to fly. So I would buy an airplane. And then it was like talking to this person and it's like, oh yeah, I do like golf a whole lot. So I'd build my own golf course. And oh, I do like to shoot guns. And so I'd buy a whole lot more of those. And, And after all of that stuff, then I would be happy. Then I would be set. And, and the thing is, is that we all kind of have that threshold in our life, it seems, of if I can get that much, then I'll be happy. If I can just get that thing, that's the next level. Whatever it is, we fill it in with maybe a raise or a promotion or a family or a vehicle or, or a house, whatever it is, we all have that thing that we are striving for. If I can just make it to 60 and retire, then I'll be happy. Whatever it is. And they even asked millionaires. I've mentioned this before. They asked millionaires, how much more money do you need to truly feel satisfied? And everybody's answer is the same. Just a little bit more. I mean, it's not a surprise that people who win the lottery, a majority of them, and we're talking like 80% and above, go bankrupt in the first year. Because here they think, all oh, this is going to make me happy. I just won the lottery, and it is going to satisfy me. Because especially as a culture that we live in, we fall into this trap of thinking that next thing is going to give me purpose. And according to Albert Einstein, we are insane for thinking that. Because Albert Einstein, he came up with the quote that said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over expecting different results. Where it's like, if only I got this thing, then I'll be happy and you get it. And it's like, ah, no, it wasn't that. I'm gonna try the same thing of seeking for it in something and that'll give me satisfaction and it's not that. And so I did a quick little research and just to show kind of the state of, America specifically right now, where we live in the most beneficial, the most prosperous, the the wealthiest nation in the world. And so here's some things about America in the era that we live in. We live in the fastest uh, era of gaining information. I've thought about like, man, if I had to prepare a sermon without Google, like that would be difficult because right now i can just google like hey i'm preaching on ecclesiastes what does it say about this and i got all this information i did a google search and you can get 25 billion results in 1.66 seconds it used to take hours to find one result in an encyclopedia but now you can have all this information at your fingertips in 1.66 seconds we're more connected than ever They say that this generation coming up, you have uh, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok, Google. uh, I mean, like everybody's like, this is the new social media that is going to improve on the next one where we are so connected that like I have like thousands of friends on Facebook. Join me. I'm popular. And yet I don't know hardly half of them. But we are more connected than ever. We have more stuff than ever. They said that LA Times stated there are 300,000 items in the average American's household, 300,000 items. The average size of a home has tripled in the past 50 years, yet one out of 10 Americans say they don't have enough space. They have to rent a storage unit, which is actually the fastest growing segment of commercial real estate in America. That people are just buying these units to be able to store their stuff. 25% of people don't have enough room in a two-car garage to park their car because it's full. The average 10-year-old owns 238 toys. Like, oh my goodness, imagine picking that much up. Shopping malls outnumber high schools. Shopping malls outnumber high schools. That one shocked me. And you will spend 153 days over half a year looking for misplaced or lost items. We have an abundance of stuff. We we are wealthy and we have more stuff than ever. And then also we are more medically advanced than ever. We are living longer than ever. I mean, just when I go do hospital visits and they're like, hey, you need an entirely new hip. So we're going to take this one that we manufactured and plant it in you and you'll be able to walk like normal. And it's like, who's the guinea pig for that? Like, how do you get to that point? But yeah, it's like, that is incredible stuff. And you know what? We're going to take this pig heart and we'll just throw it in you and it'll work. And it's like, what in the world? We are medically advanced. And also we have the quickest access to food than ever. I mean, you got fast food, you got restaurants galore, you got like just food in your freezer. We have an abundance of food. But here's the reality of all of that stuff as well. We have more information than ever, but we're also dumber than ever. The IQ is dropping in American people. We are more connected than ever, but this new generation that is coming up is actually considered the loneliest generation, even though they are connected on so many ways, they are the loneliest generation that many are saying it is a loneliness pandemic, that we are seeing the suicide rate go up. There's been more suicides in 2022, that's the number that they based it off of, than ever before in America, because a lot of it is loneliness. We have more stuff than ever, but we have more debt than ever. The average household is in over $100,000 of debt. That's the average. So if you're debt free, you're bringing that average down, but it also means there's other people that are also spiking that average right now. Again, we are the most medically advanced that we've ever been, but we are taking our lives faster than ever more suicides than ever. And then the last one is we have more access to food, but we are actually less healthy than we have ever been. And so here it is, I I share all of that because we keep thinking, these are the things that are gonna satisfy me. These are the things that I'm gonna pursue after. And what stats are showing us is it's not the solution. It's not what is going to bring you ultimate fulfillment. That there's only one thing that will truly bring us that purpose. And Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, as we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. He says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has made everything beautiful in his time. And then he says, he has hidden eternity In man's heart, he has put eternity into man's heart. He is saying, it's been said this way, there is a God-shaped hole in the heart of every man that we are trying to put stuff in there, but there's only one thing that can truly satisfy us. And we're gonna find out what that is this morning. Because that's what Solomon talks about through all of Ecclesiastes. Before he sums up what we need to find it in, he says, I have tried. And if you were here during our series on Ecclesiastes, a lot of this is going to be review, but it's a good review, I believe also, because it's a trap. Even since then, I've fallen into it, and Heather's had to remind me over and over and over and over and over and over, like, that doesn't matter, because I'm kind of a possession kind of guy. I like stuff. We have like 300 plus thousand things in our house, I'm sure, but... Solomon is writing this to us saying, I sought for purpose in all these things, and yet I didn't find it. And so again, as we talked about when we covered Ecclesiastes the first time, we can make the mistake of saying, Solomon, you don't know, so I'm going to try it on my own, or we can learn from him and live out of what he has to teach us. And so Ecclesiastes is actually written as a sermon, because that's the first words out of it, the preacher to the people and so he is saying that he is a preacher and the name ecclesiastes comes from that greek word ecclesia which is this it is the assembly of people that he is writing to an assembly of people a sermon based on his life events of i tried it all if you will listen to me and so really it doesn't tell us who wrote it. It's authored by the preacher that's self-appointed in Ecclesiastes 1.1. But church history has told us it's been Solomon. And when you look at the events that he writes about, it clearly points out Solomon is the one that went through all of these. It talks about him being king of Israel, having all this wealth, being a son of David. And so church history up until like the 16th century, just without contest said, Solomon is the author. It was written based on Solomon being the author, again, during the later years of his life, where in 1 Kings chapter 11, we are told Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and they drew his heart away from God. And so it was written later on when he has lost despair, or he's gained despair, he has lost Hope, as his many wives has now turned his heart away from God. The main theme that you will see over and over as you're reading it is it is under the sun, meaning apart from God. That Solomon, he tried building all of these things out of glory and beauty under the sun. He tried gaining wisdom under the sun apart from God. He tried living a wise life apart from God. And that's the word that you'll see repeated. 34 times you see repeated the words under the sun. And then 28 times you see, or vice versa, 28 times you see the word vanity, or if it's like NIV, meaningless. That all of this that I tried for, that new vehicle that I was able to buy, it became meaningless to base my entire life off of that. That new career I sought and I gave everything else up was meaningless when I left everything to pursue after that. I'm not saying that those things are bad. I'm saying that when we focus solely on them and we say, this is the only thing that will give me purpose. That's when they become bad. That God blesses us with them. And I heard one pastor say at one time, he said that a good thing becomes a bad thing when that good thing becomes an ultimate thing. So your job is a blessing from God. You may not think it, but it can be a blessing from God. But when you make it your ultimate thing, it has become a bad thing. And so we see over and over the word meaningless and vanity. Being based on a sermon, it can be broke down into three kind of categories. The first one is Solomon opens up in the first 11 verses by giving his statement of the vanity of it all. He says in verse two, actually, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. And so he's saying, this is the premise of what I'm going to be telling you about. And then the following six chapters are going to be his proof that everything is vanity, where he is saying that I built gardens and I built mansions and it was meaningless. I I gained wealth for myself and it was meaningless. I, I gave my body all the pleasures that it would desire and that was meaningless. He's saying I can prove to you it's meaningless because I have done it and not only have I done it, I've done it better than you can ever imagine. And yet it all came back meaningless. And then the last thing that he closes with is he gives counsel on how do you live when it's all vanity? What do you do? And so he kind of repeats in that phrase. He says, live it up, eat, drink, be merry. Have yourself the desires of your heart. But then at the very end, he comes to this conclusion. Because again, the whole question is, what's the purpose? And it's kind of like, I don't know how long it took Solomon to write Ecclesiastes, if it was like over a a process of time. But at the very end, he comes and he says in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. And he says, based on it all, everything is going to be meaningless, except this. Fear the Lord and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments this is what you were created for. This is the one area that you are going to find purpose. And I get it. I'm talking to a lot of Christians, a lot of people who have given their life over to God. And it's kind of like, all right, you're preaching to the choir. We just heard this a couple months ago. And Andy, I'm living that way. But do you realize that you woke up this morning and there is a battle being waged? And that there is a culture out there that is doing everything it is able to. And it's actually a spiritual war because we're told we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of this world, against the dark forces at work. And there is a war that is trying to get you to step away from that command right there. To be like, you know what? It's actually not just Jesus. It's Jesus plus this. I'd be really happy. It's not Jesus only. I'm not that satisfied with Jesus. I got my salvation. Now I want to enjoy the ways of this world. That the world is telling you don't get too cozy in your relationship with Jesus. That what you should do is actually you can have both. Live for Jesus and that fact that, hey, you're here this morning. Congratulations. Now, tomorrow, live for yourself, live for the weekend party it up, and then you can go and repent Sunday morning. You can check that one off your box. Live for the world, live for Jesus, and you'll be happy. That's what the world's trying to tell you. And yet, I mean, you can hear it in the way that people give counsel and things. Whenever they're like, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm torn with this struggle. What should I do? And it's like a major contrast. And the world is usually like, you know what, don't get crazy with Jesus. Don't 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 be considered one of those Jesus freaks Don't he he didn't actually mean for you to like forsake everything and live for him He just wanted you to say I believe there is a Jesus and that he died for my sins and it'll all be good That's what the world's trying to tell us I mean look at what culture is saying You see guys win NBA titles or world champions and they're like, you know what? First off, I just want to thank God, you know, he gave me the abilities Now I'm going to go have another child in another city with another woman. I'm going to sleep around. I'm not going to really live according to what God's word tells me to do. You know what? I know what? I know God tells me about this, that I should not, you know, give myself over to anything, but I should be controlled by the Holy Spirit. But actually, uh, I'm going to let all these other impulses control me. Like we're seeing this this thing of there are so many people in society today that are claiming to be Christians. And there's actually a passage in Matthew where Jesus says that they are going to cast out demons in his name. They're going to heal in his name. They are going to go and do all these things in his name. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And it's saying that just because you say that that you believe in Jesus, it's like, whoa, hold on. Where did we get that it is just simply, I believe and that's it, that there's not a life change? I mean, yeah, you're going to find salvation is through grace alone, through faith, and it's only the work of Jesus, but I think there are so many people in that the church has done, you can have Jesus and this world too, and I'm afraid there are a lot of people that are going to wake up and be surprised when they stand before Jesus, and he's like, you weren't living for me. I mean, you believed in me like you believe in Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. Both are great guys. But I am the son of God. I am the only way to salvation. And when you say you believe in me, he says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, that word believe isn't simply I believe that there is a church called Center Christian. It means I'm going to change the way I live my life through the grace of Jesus. That when I am saved, he changes me. And so we are called to be new creations. Throughout Paul's writing, he tells us over and over, you died to that way of life. Why are you still living in it? Why? He's like, it it should not be that way. Because you are created for one reason. And that's to glorify God. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory whom I formed when I made. You see, there's there's so many people that are trying to live this way for God, but also be a part of the world. And honestly, they are probably the saddest people, in my opinion, because they are unable to enjoy any of it. They're not fully committed over to God, and so they're not receiving the joy of living for him, but yet they're still trying to live in the world, and then they're like, man, there's this conviction that I have, and I don't even enjoy this, but I'm not close to God, and it's like, I'm sorry, pooper, get off the pot, like, make up your mind, live for the world and at least be honest with yourself that that's what you're doing don't think i can live for the very thing that jesus died for and i'm going to keep living over here and i'm going to claim salvation through jesus like i'm not the judge but i know the judge says some pretty harsh things about this and he is saying here if you are looking for purpose in anything outside of jesus it's meaningless that it is found only in him and him alone because Solomon is saying I continually tried and I came up empty and he said this is this is the end of the matter fear the Lord see notice he says fear the Lord which means living right for God putting God where he's at and living for his glory for his honor for his approval how do we fear the Lord you keep his commandments You obey him. Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, if you truly love me, you will obey my commands. It's not saying I love you, but it'd be like if you got married and I told Heather, hey, I love you, but um, I'm going out with this lady tomorrow night. I actually read a story. That is a thing in today's culture where this woman was like, we have an open marriage. He's dating another girl right now. And it's like, oh my goodness, where have we gone? But Jesus is telling us, to live for him because he's saying the thief is going to come and the thief is going to try and encourage you with those shiny things. It's like if you go bass fishing, one of the ways that you catch a bass, throw something shiny in the water. And I think it's bass Earl, right? Maybe not. Some fish like shiny things and I'm a fish. And so Satan is going to lure shiny things in front of me to try and pull me away. And Jesus tells us in John 10, 10, the thief is gonna come to steal, kill, and destroy. That if you seek after all these things, it's gonna lead to death. But Jesus came so that we may have life and not just live life, but we may live life abundantly. When we find purpose in Jesus, that is where we find true identity and joy and life. Paul, he tells Timothy, whenever he's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Because again, the world is going to try and tell you, Jesus, you can have Jesus, but add all this other stuff to it, and that's where you're going to be happy. But here's the equation. Jesus plus anything is going to equal nothing. Jesus plus nothing, and you're going to receive everything. You will have everything when you have Jesus and Jesus alone. That When you find true purpose in Jesus, you might lose your house. You might lose so much of your valuable things. And I'm not just talking about possessions. I'm talking about things that you truly care about. And Jesus trumps it all. So as long as you have Jesus, you have a joy. I'm not saying there's not pain. I'm not saying that there's not heartache. I'm saying you find purpose still that you could lose your future, your 401k, your retirement. And it's like, you know what, that's fine because I have Jesus and I have an eternal inheritance that cannot be taken away from me. And so while I'm here, yeah, I might have to live. There's gonna come a day that I will have an eternal rest. Jesus, he told us it this way. He said in Matthew chapter 16, he said, whoever would save his life, I wanna gain things. I wanna increase my life here. Whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will a prophet a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is saying it's it's me plus nothing and you'll have everything. That this world could say, hey, right now, all you have to do is say there is no Jesus and we'll give you $186 million. We'll give you the entire debt, of the United States, $36 trillion or whatever it is. And all you have to do is seek it in this and not Jesus. And Jesus is saying that is a bad deal. And so who who would make that exchange though? I mean, you look at the story of Columbine, the Columbine shooting that happened like late 1990s. And there was a girl who was told, all you have to do, gun to her head. And she was told, you do not have to die if you will denounce who Jesus is save your life. That's what the world wants to say. Hey, just, you can repent of it later. Just spare your life right now. Say it. Don't mean it. Just say it. And she said, I'm not going to deny Christ. And then the next thing she knew, she was in eternity, realizing, yeah, that was a pretty solid non-exchange. That I made the right decision. That we are called to live for Jesus, And the thing is, when you realize the value of who God is, the value of life lived for him, you realize whatever this world has to give me, it's a bad deal. I am not going to make that exchange. And we resolve to it. When we see the value, we don't make that exchange. And so we grow in our value and we see who Jesus is. Because David, he tells us in Psalm 84, verse 10, he says, you know what? I would rather live in heaven as a doorkeeper. He says, for a day in God's court is better than a thousand elsewhere. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. Give me the lowest position and let me live with God for eternity than give me a mansion with the wicked. I'd rather be living on the streets of heaven Praise be to God. I don't think that's how it's going to be. But I'd rather, yeah, give me the ditch in heaven instead of the most fame, the most wealth, the most everything here on earth. It does not compare. Heaven is far, far greater. And so what, what Solomon is telling us and what God is presenting us with is a choice. We can read Ecclesiastes, we can see the meaninglessness of it all, and we can continue to be an insane person and think, yeah, but I, it, I don't believe it, it's just that next thing. And then we'll get that next thing and we'll be like, actually, it wasn't this, it was something else, it wasn't that, it was something else. Or we can find who God truly is. And we can say, you know what, God, I've been trying to live the ways of the world and I have seen that it does not measure up. So now what I'm gonna do at this moment is I'm gonna fear you and keep your commandments. And I'm gonna trust that your promises are true. And I'm gonna glorify you in everything that I do. You see, here's the thing about Solomon. He was the wisest man to ever walk the earth. But yet he made the dumbest decision, probably that, I, I read of that comes to mind at least. Because here he was able to ask God for anything and he said, God, give me wisdom. And he was he was leading the people of Israel faithfully under God. And they saw prosperity and they saw, it, it says that actually under Solomon, everybody owned a house. That's how great it was. But he allowed the vices of this world to pull him away. He made that bad exchange, where he, and we're we're told in 1 Kings chapter 11, allowed his many wives to draw him away from the Lord, and it says he then did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and what we see from that is the downfall of Israel, because Solomon's son, Rehoboam, starts making really bad decisions, and then there's a division, and then eventually Israel goes into exile, and they had like no good kings, and then Judah went into exile and they had a couple good kings, but but ended bad. And it was like, man, did that start? Because Solomon allowed this to pull him away. And it's like here at the end of his life though, he came back to it all. And he said, this is the matter at hand. And all things have been said, all things have been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. And here's, let me be honest with you. I believe that God is a God of redemption. I have a redemptive theology, which means that I can take the things that are broken and when they're put under God, he starts to work in his supernatural way and he redeems them being relationships, addictions, whatever it is that he will come in and redeem them for you. I'm not saying you'll be a millionaire. Like, huh, my job's broken, give it to God and I'll become a millionaire. What I'm saying is he takes brokenness and makes it whole. And so I believe that there are broken things things in, even maybe in this body today, like assembly, that are broken because we are stepping outside of God's will. We are not fearing God in keeping his commandments. And it's like, man, I'm starting to see the trickle-down effect in my relationships, in my children, or whatever it is. I believe God can redeem those things if we surrender them over to him. If you decide here and now today to fear God, and keep his commandments. What's it going to hurt? Everything outside of the will of God that I've tried doing has led to disaster. It might seem great for a moment, but it ends up blowing up in my face. Whereas when we live within the will of God and we keep his commandments, man, there's a joy in it. Because Jesus said, I came to give you life and life abundantly. And again, the question might be, why would I take that risk? Solomon, who was so wise, said so many great things, and he tells us throughout Proverbs, he says, wisdom, which last week we looked at how wisdom is, uh, wisdom is, oh my goodness, Proverbs is wisdom displayed, but no, nope, portrayed. See, I had a great saying and I blew it up already. Proverbs is wisdom displayed something. Portrayed, displayed. I got my words confused. Anyways, we read about wisdom in Proverbs. We see wisdom in Jesus, so they're interchangeable. That when you read Proverbs, it says, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare to her. Proverbs eight nineteen. It says that her fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and her yield than choice silver. Proverbs fifteen seventeen. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened calf or ox and hatred with it. Proverbs 16, 18, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. 19:1. better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. Throughout it, it's saying it is better to live for God than, and, and have nothing than to step outside of God's will, gain everything, but not have God, not have relationship with him. You see, you have an eternal dwelling waiting for you. And what Paul would tell you is hold firm to that. All these shiny, dangling little things that are coming in front of us, don't take the bait. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Pursue after him, fear him, and keep his commandments. No matter what comes your way, even if it's difficulties. Because Paul tells us, and I'm closing with this, 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light and momentary affliction, it seems so hard right now. But this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that, as Proverbs would say, is better than silver, better than gold, better than fine jewels. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then the writer of Hebrews tells us, Therefore, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So let's stop living for this world and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fearing God and keeping his commandments and we're looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what you're called to do today. To as you leave here, lay aside everything that's entangling you. And as Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes it feels like cutting your arm off. Like, oh man, I got to get rid of that. But if it saves your soul, do it. Because what is it to profit this world and forfeit your soul? It is a bad exchange. And so today, what God's calling you to do is the end of the matter is at hand. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fixing your eyes on Jesus until he calls you home. Father God, we thank you that you are worthy of it all. God, you came down and gave your life as Jesus came down, gave your life so that we could have this eternal hope. And so God, I just pray that there are so many, and I'm guilty of it too, where I want to look outside of who you are and try and find purpose and satisfaction in things of this world that you created for your glory. And I'm trying to find my glory in them. So God, I pray that you just work on all of our hearts so that we fix our eyes on you. We see that you are the ultimate source of joy and that we surrender all those things to you. That as you tell us in Matthew 6, 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be handed over to us. So God, may we do that. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, amen.